Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 1 of Out With Susie Ruffle. First of all, I will say I have a very croaky voice this morning. I'm, um, I've got a cold. I mean, it's not that interesting, really. I've got a cold. I've done three COVID tests. I don't think it's that. I'm pretty sure it's not. Keep checking, but it looks like just a run-of-the-mill cold. So first off, apologies that I've got this sort of gravelly voice. Although, is it good? Does this sound like I could do, like, late-night radio? Like, that was Luther Vandross? Who knows? Anyway, hello. Welcome back to a new series of Out With Susie Ruffle. I've been beavering away all over the summer to get some great episodes for you. Uh, I've got a bunch of them that are already in the bag. Some more I'm still knocking on the doors of people, people that you suggested. I've got in touch. Um, some have said yes. Some are yet to respond. Some have said no. But I do have a lineup of fantastic interviews for you. And today's I'm just so excited about. It's Darren Hayes from Savage Garden. Now, I'm 35. I feel like if you are like within 10 years of my age, Savage Garden, I mean, or it could be a different age. They could have meant a lot to you. Of course, there's a very good chance of that. They were fantastic. But for me, at that pivotal moment of my teenage years, oh, they were my favourite band. I absolutely loved them. You will hear the whole of this episode. I'm basically fangirling Darren Hayes. I absolutely love him. What an incredible man. What a kind person to spend some time with us. I just fell in love with him, as you will hear throughout the episode. But before we get to that, as always, I've got your listener emails, which... It seems that everyone loves, I love them too. First off, thank you so much to all of you that get in touch, that you've left the iTunes reviews. That's super helpful because it means that like more people will see the podcast because the more comments you have, the more it sort of goes up and it goes into the charts. So please like it and let people know about it. Um, thank you to everyone that's got in touch with the emails. If you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at ruffle.com. There's lots of people that have tweeted and Instagrammed and I really, really appreciate it. I see every single one and I just love that people spend their time listening to this show. Also, lots of you have come along to the tour show, which has been so lovely. I've met so many of you. Always wait out the front of the venue. I always leave via the front um, and I've met loads of you. So that has been really, really special and really lovely. So if you're coming to one of the tour shows, please um, stick around and say hi. If you're wondering where I'm going on tour, I can tell you right now by looking at my own website. Okay, I'm going to Blackheath Halls, Milton Keynes, Lyme Regis, Great Torrington, Ivy Bridge, Reading, Portsmouth, Banbury, Colchester and East Grinstead. And then that's it for this tour. That's the last time I'm going to be doing this show and I'll go out with a new one probably next year. Okay, let's get on with this podcast, shall we? Um, I think you can tell that I'm a little bit poorly because I'm really going around the houses this morning, but I hope that you don't mind too much. Oh, also another thing, what is wrong with me today? Another thing, if you're a fan of like-minded friends, it's the podcast that I do with Tom Allen. It will be coming back, I think in November, we're doing a massive relaunch. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, there's gonna be some audience interaction like they've never been before. We've just done a new photo shoot for it. It's gonna be so much fun. You're gonna absolutely love it. So if you love this podcast, I think you'll love that one too. So that's Like-Minded Friends, and I will let you know in a few weeks when that one starts again. Okay, here we go. Finally, she's getting to the emails. She's all over the shop this morning, and I've got a gig tonight, and I, and I sound like this. It's a real nightmare. That's me drinking some lemon and honey. Okay, here we go. Dear Susie and team, firstly, thank you for your brilliant podcast. I found it through your interview on Building Queertopia. Ah, if you haven't listened to Building Queertopia, it's a really great podcast. Uh, have a look at it, it's great fun. 
and have binge listened to almost every episode over the last couple of weeks. Not only is it really entertaining and funny, it's made me feel less alone as I slowly crawl out of my lockdown routines. I came out 10 years ago, age 30, although it never really ends, does it? And entered a world where, from my perspective, everyone appeared to be very comfortable with their identity as well as their sexuality. I felt like I'd joined a series halfway through and had to pretend I knew what the hell was going on. As a consequence, I never really felt able to talk about the shame I carried and still carry. My straight friends don't really understand and I felt too afraid to talk to my gay friends for fear of sounding homophobic, which I obviously am a bit in a sort of internalised way. Instead, I've kept my identity and my sexuality very separate. The bi things being just one part of me that I may or may not tell people. I avoided the scene. I decided I wasn't that type of gay. And like you, I made jokes about not getting a gay haircut, which I ended up getting, let's be honest. Finally, at the grand old age of 40, keep up the CrossFit and everything hurts by 40, your podcast has made me realise that shame is much more common than I thought, and that has been an enormous weight lifted off of my conscience. I still have some work to do and have signed up for some LGBTQ plus counselling to hopefully work through it, but I want to say a big thank you to you and your guests for being so open and honest about it. Anyway, I really want to tell you about my fabulous niece. She and her equally fabulous older brother attend a preschool where some kids have a mum and a dad, others have two mums or two dads, and some have just one parent. And at least one kid has three parents. She's five and never stops talking about her love of dolls and clothes and football equally, and has a girlfriend. And this is not an issue at all. It's just as adorable and innocent as it should be. And it makes me, well, cry, but in a happy way because it means the cycle of shame has been broken, or at least severely dented, which gives me hope in change and progress and makes me so thankful for all those people who have got us here. Keep up the amazing podcasting, and if you're able to reach out to guests in countries where LGBTQ plus rights do not yet exist, I think that would be great. Best wishes. Oh, and you haven't said whether I could use your name, so I'm not going to, just in case you don't want me to, but I know who you are. Um, First of all, thank you so much for getting in touch. I think internalised homophobia is a massive part of a lot of queer people's journeys and I think having some LGBTQ plus counselling sounds like an excellent idea. Also your niece sounds awesome. Um, Isn't that amazing? Like I can remember when I was at school people being like oh it's your boyfriend, it's your girlfriend and how amazing will it be? I mean it sounds like it's already happening at this preschool but one day parents saying it about anyone, you know, a little boy having a oh you two boyfriends, you know it's It's hopeful, isn't it? It's hopeful. And as you say, completely innocent and is stopping that cycle of shame. So thank you for sharing your story with me. And I really hope that you're you're feeling good and that therapy's helping. Okay, let's move on to another one. Hi, Susie. Thank you so much for your podcast. I've been a late starter to the podcast and I'm currently partway through the second series as a fairly new friend of mine introduced me and I'm very grateful. I'm a 36-year-old woman married to my wonderful wife since 2014 and we've been together since 2003. I can honestly say that I've never really come out as such, although I've outed myself daily whenever I talk about my family life. Since having our daughter in 2019, I found myself even more distant from my parenting peers. Since listening to your podcast, it's made me realise how I've probably felt like this my whole life. From a young age, I felt different. People used to label this in many ways, but the usual one would be, you're just wise beyond your years. I never struggled to make friends with people, but always seemed to struggle to remain friends. Something always just didn't quite feel right. As I hit teenage years and hormones kicked in, I felt the pressure to fit in with one group some way or another. I knew that I should like the boys, as that's how I was supposed to be, and there was always something niggling. 
I kissed a boy, but as soon as it became anything more serious, like a possible relationship or anything more than a kiss, I ran for the hills. It never really occurred to me that I might be queer. I almost find it hilarious listening to this description of the intense female friendship, simply because I feel embarrassed now that I couldn't see it back then at the time. Neither could I, don't worry. When I was 17, a friend of mine declared that she had feelings for me. This was a complete shock and I can't say I handled the situation well, almost dismissing her feelings as ridiculous, as I'm clearly not a lesbian. At 18, I moved abroad to Spain, where my now wife came into my life. After a few weeks of unexplained, unexpected flirting, one thing led to another. This led to Emma not speaking to me for several days. Our relationship at the, be at the beginning was definitely challenging, yet exciting. We were both new to the queer world and Emma was adamant that she was definitely not gay and this would never lead to a relationship. We had a secret life behind closed doors for over a year. I could talk a lot about our ups and downs rollercoaster relationship, but after 18 years, we're still happy and in love. We're really lucky. However, your podcast has really helped me see how closed a life we still lead. We have very few queer friends and no family. And I realize now more than ever before, this can sometimes feel very lonely. I'm very comfortable with my relationship and happy to shout it from the rooftops, but we don't because we live in a bubble and we don't want to upset or offend and we don't want to be anything extra difficult. Your podcast has helped me realise that maybe I should reach out to the LGBTQI plus community more and that maybe there are people who share the same feelings as me that, and that, that support could be immeasurable. Although I'm an outwardly confident person, internally I suffer heavily with anxiety and I am a definite overthinker. I still question my sexuality and I don't really know where I sit with it. I'm married to a woman so people assume I'm a lesbian. Quite honestly, I don't know. Emma is the only relationship I've ever known. I recently spoke to my sister and brother-in-law after listening to your podcast. They were quite shocked how open I was with them as they'd never heard me speak like that before. He made a joke that if I'd been talking about religion, he would have asked if I'd joined some sort of a cult. He didn't mean to be offensive, but it just proved even more that some straight people just don't get it. I'm not easily offended, but I am quite highly sensitive. I try to be accepting and understanding of everything, of anything and everything, and can sometimes be a little intrusive perhaps. I'm fascinated by other people and love people telling me their stories. It's been amazing to listen to so many people's lives and their challenges. I feel like when you're interviewing, you are similar. You want to know everything, but also overthink things so that you don't want to intrude too deeply. You've really got me there, that's absolutely right. I'm sure you get lots of emails and don't have the time to read them all. I just wanted to say thank you. Each story opens up another mystery from my past, present or future. In times where I felt alone in my life, this podcast could have really been a great help. I've shared the link with all the people I know. Most of them will never listen, but if it reaches one extra person and helps them understand themselves or helps them understand a family member better or a friend, then that's fantastic. I've taken enough of your time. Thank you for reading and I look forward to more episodes. And again, you've not said whether I can share your name, so I'm not going to, just in case you don't want me to. Um, but thank you so much for getting in touch. Um, I, I know exactly how you feel um, about that in, in wanting to know everything but not wanting to intrude. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there with what I'm trying to do with the podcast because I always want people to feel like, you know, it's just a friendly chat, but at the same time, I really want to know everything. Um, so you're totally right there. Um, I'm so pleased that this podcast has, has maybe opened up new thinking to you and reaching out and finding an LGBTQIA plus community. I really highly recommend Some Families, which is the queer podcast. I had um, Stu and Lottie on the podcast in the last series. They've got a brilliant podcast about queer parenting. And I'm sure that you could um, 
you could you could find out more stuff via that but thank you so much for, for listening to the podcast and for sharing your story and um all all, all the best to you and your wife and your little girl and yeah I, I i just really appreciate you getting in touch okay i think we've all had enough of my croaky voice luckily i spoke to darren a few weeks ago so i didn't have this voice um i loved this episode uh i think that you really will too i'm going to put a trigger warning at the top we talk about mental health and abuse and alcoholism so if you feel like you can't deal with that today then maybe this isn't the podcast for you today uh maybe listen to another one uh but i hope that you enjoy this as much as i did Okay, listener, this is a bit of a special one for me today. Savage Garden were a massive part of my adolescence. Affirmation was the second album I ever bought and I spent days in my bedroom learning every single word to the album. And you might be interested to know, this week I found out I still know all of them. Frontman Darren Hayes was a heartthrob with an incredible voice and an awesome stage presence. Savage Garden somehow felt like they were for me, mainly because of one line in one song. I believe you can't control or choose your sexuality. I remember playing Affirmation, the song that's from, over and over and over again, just for that one line, thinking in my teenage bedroom, someone else gets it. Someone else gets me. Savage Garden sold more than 20 million records worldwide, won countless awards and toured all over the globe. Darren went on to have a really successful solo career as well. After all these years, Savage Garden and Darren's solo work still pops up on my most played list on Spotify. I am beyond thrilled that he is joining me from LA today. Welcome to the show, Darren. Susie, I mean, what a wonderful introduction. You just made me want to cry. Thank you. <laughs> Good. That's my plan. I just want you to cry. No, it's it's absolutely true. I remember buying your album from Portsmouth HMV, for anyone that's local that's listening, yeah, I remember it being really important to me. That means so much to me, especially that you quoted that line. And next year, this will make so much more sense because, boy, I have so many stories to tell about just how hard it was to be gay and be in the music industry, well, 25 years ago, you know, and to want to put those kinds of messages out into the world and the kind of resistance that I was met with at the time. But just hearing you, because I know so much about you and knowing that something I was struggling with, something that I needed to say, because I was saying that to the people in my life as well. You know, I was saying that to my, my parents. I was saying that to the people in my life. I was saying that to myself. I was saying that to my fans to get them ready mm-hmm. so that they would know and hopefully still love me. I think there was a part of me that was afraid that they wouldn't love me if they thought that I was gay. So saying that line to me, it felt like an incredibly courageous thing to do without any applause or anything. It felt very dangerous but also Mm. really liberating to say that. And you put it so well when you said, you know, that I'm going to paraphrase you, but you got me. You know, the fact that you heard that, it Mm. means so much to me because you got me. And I felt so seen back then because I was looking out into the audience for my tribe. I was looking for people that understood me and would love me for me at the time. And it it just Mm. means so much to me that, that some people heard it back then. So thank you for like listening and getting it. No, that was like, yeah, 14 year old me was like, oh, 
You know when you hear, you know when you're listening, you know, I love music, and you hear, listen to a record and then you hear a line and you're like, did they say what I think they said? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you'd have the CD so you'd be able to skip back 10 seconds uh-huh. on the track and be like, oh, yeah, they, they did. They said that thing that I really wanted them to oh, say. That's beautiful. I was right. And I just, yeah, I just remember that meaning. I mean, it was about another seven years before I had the courage to come out. But funnily enough, I have a very funny video of uh, my last night out before lockdown where I was at my Hindu. And my best friend and I were singing Affirmation <laughs> in a karaoke club. And we were going for it. I mean, so hard. It's unbelievable. Uh, props, props, props. Because anyway. that's a lot of lyrics. There's, there's a lot of things to remember. But don't you find that like the songs that you learned when you were a teenager, it's like, well, that's logged in. That's never going. I don't remember how to do a tax return. I don't really understand how my pension works. That can be explained to me over and over and over again. But listen. Definitely. I, yeah, definitely. They're in there forever. Yeah. What was that about being a teenager? I think we poured over, I mean, partly I'm going to date myself here. I don't mean go on a date, but I just mean age age <laughs> myself. Because I think partly that was an era of really pouring over the physical format. So we could we also had the, the CD booklet in my case or the, the vinyl booklet, you know, and so we could really scrutinize and it, it felt like a badge of honor. I remember being in a car and if you knew all the lyrics to a song, it felt like you were just proving to everyone that you really knew that song. Yeah. And you're already into music. Yeah. I'm kind of cool. I'm like, I'm into music. <laughs> like I'm a music that. person. I know the words. Yeah, you're like me. I'm really into music. It's just, I'm the kind of person who's really into music. Yeah. Like that's an unusual thing. Just like, I'm kind of crazy because I'm into music. I know. But you know, it's it's not though, because it, it's funny. Those years are so defining. You, you know, we really... We come into ourselves when we start buying our own music, you know, because when we were we were younger, before we could go to Portsmouth HMV with our own pocket money, sure, sure. it was whatever we heard on the radio or our parents or whoever played us. But those yeah. defining moments when it was that we went to school and you had to live and die by those musical choices. You were choosing a tribe. Yes. You know? Totally. And then it became a badge of honour because, like, for me, it used to be, like, in the days of smash hits, Mm -hmm. I would cover all my school books, you know, with, um, I would cut out pictures. I used to have pictures of, I mean, I was obsessed with the usual, like, uh, 80s icons like Michael Jackson, Madonna, George Michael. But then when I really wanted to define myself, it was like, no, 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 you guys don't understand. I'm really into Prince. So, like, and Terence Trent Darby, I don't think you guys really understand me. It's like, I'm really into Terence Trent Darby. So, I'm just going to post this obscure lyric by Terence Trent Darby, and you probably wouldn't get it. It's just, it's just, <laughs> it's just because I'm just so different, you know? Because <laughs> you're a muso. You're busy being a muso. You get it. Yeah. So, so who would have been your like number one pop star growing up? Like, so I, I watched an mm. interview with you. And it said that when you were about 12 or 13, you were like, music's what I want to do. You just knew. And you were kind of surprised that other people yeah. weren't thinking the exact same thing. Yes. Um, so, oh, gosh, thank you for oh, You normally have to pay someone a lot of money every week to listen to me talk so much. So thank you for this. <laughs> yes, it was Michael Jackson, but I'll tell you why. So I talk very flippantly and very honestly about my childhood, but trigger warning for anyone that has come from abuse or domestic violence or alcoholism or any of those things, because these are just facts and parts of my life. And I talk about them sometimes so much that I forget that sometimes it's a bit shocking for people. But the, tr- the truth for me is that my childhood 
was very, very violent. If you listened to the album Affirmation, you would have heard songs like Two Beds in a Coffee Machine. Mm -hmm. You know, that was me really talking about my mother and our childhood and how we dealt with my dad's violence and his and his alcoholism. But what was also going on with me as a child, and like any child of difference, whether it be our sexuality or any point of difference, whether that be uh, race or gender identification or ability or anything like that, mine was uh, sexuality. And I was bullied relentlessly for being gay before I even identified as gay. You know, mm. I was just like every cliche you, you always hear about, you know, the kid that's called the F word at school. And it was incredibly bad to the point that I had suicidal thoughts, you know, when I was probably, I would say, well, it's different in Australia, the age grouping, but we call it grade eight, but that was my first year of high school. So 1987 was Michael Jackson's Bad album. And if you look at the music video for that, essentially he's bullied in that video. And for me, it really resonated because when I was being spat on or beaten up after school, or I would be in classrooms where I would just literally, if the teacher turned their back, I would have to put my head in my arms and go into another world. Now, as an adult, I understand that now as I was dissociating. But what it did for me was he became almost like an avatar. He became someone that he was androgynous he was neither male nor female to me. He wore makeup. He was this person, if I think about that video, you know, it's kind of hilariously ridiculous. He jumps out of the ceiling. He's like, you ain't bad. You ain't nothing. And he literally, <laughs> you know, he, turn, he stands on the ground and he's got this, this mullet perm and these boots. And to me, he was everything my imagination escaped to. And, and I'll get to the end of the story, but the truth is that we didn't have a lot of money, but uh, he was touring Australia back then. And because of a crazy rumor where uh, the press had said that he was so afraid of germs, he'd be performing inside a hermetically sealed bubble. <laughs> this is crazy. Ticket sales had stopped in Australia. So instead of playing in stadiums, he only played in small arenas in Australia. So he went on to, in the UK, he broke all records at Wembley Stadium. I think he played eight or nine sold out stadiums. But in my hometown, the one stadium show, which holds 80,000 people, it got turned into two nights at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre, which holds a maximum of 12,000 people, right? And I don't even think it got sold out. So my field ticket was randomly exchanged when I went to the venue and it happened to be front row. <gasps> so that was the moment that, that you can find it on YouTube. If you search uh, Michael Jackson Brisbane Entertainment Centre, it's, it's second eight in the video. You can see 15-year-old me and I'm screaming, I love you, Michael. And the privilege of that was I was kicked throughout the whole show by some girls throughout the whole show who were calling me gay, calling me the F word, I was punched. Like, it was a very surreal experience because I was watching this man who was my idol and I was watching how he transformed the room and there was hysteria and I knew everything that was going on in my life as a child, all of that bullying that was happening. But I had this foresight to realize that what was happening in school wasn't real and that I had this ability, this 
this singing voice, like you have this comedic voice, you know, I had this talent inside me. It wasn't of me. It was just coming through me. It was something that was channeling through me and that one day I was going to do something with it. And almost 10 years to the day later, I sold out that same arena as Savage Garden. So I yeah. love that so much. So yes, he influenced me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So were you like performing at all when you were that age at school? Were you writing songs? Were you? Yeah, I was. Um, and thank God for, you know, those teachers and musical teachers that saw the little fledglings and just said, oh, this child needs protecting. It was musicals. So, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, I, I was the kid that was in musicals and that helped alleviate a lot of the bullying because like, you know, like a Billy Elliot or whatever, when I sang, they shut up. Mm -hmm. When I performed, I did the, the magical thing that made people kind of go, oh, oh, wow. Okay. And so I, I, the teachers would look out for me in that way. I was put into choir and all the things you get bullied for, but it gave me that sense of purpose. So I studied music. I think I wrote my first song when I was maybe, maybe 11 or 12. It was hilarious. It was, it was a song about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> hilarious. Of course I'm gay. <laughs> and I performed it on a local like radio station on the guitar. It was called, uh, what was it called? I think it was called, you flew away from it all. And, uh, yeah, I was always dancing. Uh, I was always singing. You know, I had a keyboard, but I was never I was never classically trained in any in anything like that. But I just had that performing kind of gene, I guess. And did yeah. you teach yourself to play stuff? Did you teach yourself to play the instruments? Now I do. Back yeah. then I didn't. So back then I I could just sing. And so like mm -hmm. for example, you know, when I met Daniel Jones, the other half of, of Savage yeah. Garden, you know, I think I was twenty one or twenty two. And I remember calling him saying, um, I don't even know if I can do this. I don't really play. I don't do anything. And I almost talked myself out of the audition. And and thank goodness, I mean, his his real talent was seeing the diamond in the rough. Like he had a this incredible ability to see something in me that was so unpolished. But he was like, yeah, I need to be in a band with you. Like, let's do this. Let's do something. And is it right that you saw it? in like an ad in a magazine that they were looking yeah yeah i uh it was a, the equivalent of like the enemy or something like that right. but there was there was a musician section and it was a lie which i laugh about now he like all good bands they he was in he was in a terrible band back then called red edge they lied and they said that we're a band with a major publishing deal they weren't they were being courted by warner chapel and the truth is that Warner Chapel said, look, we like you, we like your songs, but you don't have the it factor, you don't have a front man, you need to get a lead singer. And so they, they posted this ad that said, we've got a major publishing deal, we're just looking for our lead singer, apply. And it was my future wife, my then girlfriend uh, at the time, who said to me, you have to do this, you have to audition for this band. So I, <laughs> I drove to the south side of Brisbane where I grew up and audition for them and yeah it was just something kind of magical and I I joined their shitty band and <laughs> they had lied and there was all sorts of weird politics involved because Daniel's brother Oliver was incredibly talented as well Oliver was a guitarist who had a beautiful voice 
But I guess as a band, they had decided he wouldn't be the lead singer, but no one told me this. So I was just put into this mix. So he hated me at the time. He doesn't now, but he hated me. Everyone was just like, oh God, who's this new guy? This, this. But when I sang, I was like a little voice, you know, like that movie. It was like, I was so awkward, so shy. But then when I sang that my voice was like, oh, okay, he's got this thing. And I'm not being arrogant about it because I, I didn't have that confidence in myself at the time. It was really Daniel's family and my wife who were the people in my life that were like, no, you, you have something special. And they, they, they really did nurture me. I know that the band and Daniel and I had a very bad breakup, but I will always say such beautiful things about him in the beginning and his family because they just saw something in me that was so like an abused animal, but they saw this potential and his family was so positive and I'd never had that experience. You know, they were this this family that were just so, if you can think it, you can be it. Mm. And that's how the band began. It was just like after six months of doing pub gigs and and I got my confidence and then I realised, first of all, I hate what we do. I hate the music that we do. I, I don't want to do this. But that's how Daniel and I became friendly and that's how his business hat really got on and he was like, ah, I see potential here. And he, his, the Simon Cowell-esque quality that he had was like, ah, we should be a duo. We should do something. And, and that was really that genius in him in, in Savage Garden and that he really saw a future. You know, he always saw that potential in me and then a potential in us to kind of break away from that band and become something else. Yeah. And how long was it before... Because I read that you said that you sent out like hundreds and hundreds of demos mm-hmm. and it wasn't, I mean, I guess the music industry is so different today where like mm-hmm. kids upload stuff and then like yeah. can like link people to it. But I yeah. guess you were actually literally sending out like, what was it, like cassette tapes? Yeah, 100%. So it was very, very quick in retrospect. So what happened was the minute we decided that we were going to be a duo, you fast forward like a year later, suddenly I have all this confidence. I've got a pierced ear. I've got jet black hair. The beginning of the person that you will end up seeing as Savage Garden has formed. You know, I'm fully formed. I've I've got swagger. I've played in smoky bars. I know how to handle Are you already wearing like the fishnet tops? Um, that I've was my defi- favorite look of yours. <laughs> all of that. The Yeah, I was an inner goth. So yeah. all of that was happening. I, leather, pleather, anything that rhymed with ether, I was wearing it. <laughs> and it, it was so funny because that, that f- sort of fluid sexuality was really coming out within me, you know, and uh, I noticed it on stage where it was a strange, quirky quality. People like Bowie and Michael Hutchins mm-hmm. and people that I admired sort of had that, but I was just naturally, I had that. So in bars and clubs in in Australia, that was, that was foreign. That wasn't relating to the audiences that we were in front of, but I, I started to look like I had this persona, this star. I, there was something about me that was, it was like, it was otherworldly. It was starting to, mm-hmm. I, 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 that little boy that had been watching Michael Jackson and understanding what a pop star was, that was fully formed. And the band got offered a gig in Uluru, which used to be called Airs Rock, but right in the center of Australia. And you two were coming to town. And that was when Bono was in his goth phase. And I had a ticket to see them. And I just went, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore, but I want to be in a band with you, Daniel. 
So here's the deal. I'm going to quit. And Daniel said to me, I'll only be in a band with you if you learn how to play this keyboard. And he gave me a, a, a book to learn the Ensonic, I think it was called something SQ. And I lied, my lie to him. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll learn how to do it. So they went <laughs> away for three months. And when they came back, I'd never learned the keyboard. And he and I wrote the song A Thousand Words. And we spent probably a year where I worked various jobs, was at school, teacher's college, all sorts of stuff. But all those demos were sent out and everyone passed. Everyone said no. But eventually on all those demos, there was a version of Truly Madly Deeply. There was To the Moon and Back, Promises was on there. Uh, I'm just trying to think what else was on there. Break Me, Shake Me was on there. A lot of the first Savage Garden record was was pretty much fully formed on those demos that every single person in Australia passed on but one one person. The beginnings of I Want You was on there as well, yeah. How long was it from when you guys said, right, okay, let's go as a duo, let's send out all these hundreds and hundreds of demos mm-hmm. to you? I mean, obviously, in my mind, you were sort of immediately famous, but obviously that's like when you're famous in the UK, like would it have been truly madly deeply would have been your first massive hit here? Yeah, it it, it actually took a lot longer in the UK. Really? It really did. I Want You was a massive flop in the UK the, the way that it, it all sort of rolled out was, I think it the timeline for from meeting Daniel to being like, you know, the band that you knew mm. was about four years. But when we got signed to Columbia Records, the way that it happened was we got picked up by one person in Australia that just said, I believe in you. His name was John Woodruff and he is an angel and I, and I love him to this day. And he was like a good Lou Pearlman, you know, when you heard of those boy bands that all got ripped off and this, you know, this person came along and snatched up their publishing and their recording. Mm -hmm. Well, he, he gave us, and to this day, I think it's true. He gave us one of the best record deals in the history of music. Like we ended up getting an incredible publishing and, and royalty rate that, so even though he signed us, he then paid for the recording of our album so that when he went and sold that onto Columbia Records, our percentages that we retained, they were superstar levels that people like a Michael Jackson or a Madonna got at the the very top of their game. Mm. So we were very, very protected. We had number ones in Australia and then we had a DJ was visiting Australia from the US and heard I Want You and took it over on a DAT cassette, which is a digital audio cassette, to the States and was doing this thing called spot playing back when they used to experiment at radio. And the response to it in the US was so great that we had a top 20 airplay hit without a record deal. And Rosie O'Donnell heard the song. She had a talk show at the time. Yeah. She heard, heard the song. And one day we just got a phone call from our uh, from John, this person who signed us, and he said, uh, you guys are not going to believe this, but you have a top 20 radio hit in America I have all the American radio labels want to fly you over there to sign you. And Rosie O'Donnell wants you on her show. So Clive Davis, the Clive Davis, who signed, you know, Mariah Carey and uh, mm-hmm. not Mariah Carey, so who signed uh, Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin and everyone you can imagine. He flew us to the US. We auditioned for him. We auditioned for Columbia Records. We signed to Columbia Records. We had I Want You as a top five hit in the US. Then I Want You was released in the UK, flopped. Then... To the Moon and Back was released in the US, was sort of like a top 20 hit, flopped in the UK. Truly <laughs> Madly Deeply was a number one hit in the USA, 
became a hit in the UK. Yeah. And then, yes. And and then they went back to I Want You and then they started the whole campaign again and they sort of tried right. again because they were screamed at essentially by, by the rest of the, the record companies going like, what? You know, so it took a while. But now the UK is my biggest market still and it's obviously my husband is British and I consider the UK my second home. Because you lived in London for a bit, right? Yeah, almost yeah. Uh, almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, and I nabbed one of you, so I'm very ha- I'm very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's pretty lucky. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, honestly, anyone who meets him though knows that. It, trust me, I'm the lucky one. He's he's everyone's favorite. It's the same as with my partner. I'm like the show off, you know, on the stage and occasionally on telly, and then they'll meet Alice and be like, "Oh, she's the real star. <laughs> she's Aww. she's great fun." That's beautiful. So when you're sort of you're releasing these songs, you're not out you're not Mm -hmm. did you because i know that you had a wife and i guess i don't want to ask questions that you're not comfortable answering but at the same time you can ask anything i'm yeah were you were you you were aware of your sexuality or you knew that you god no really (laughs) no no. okay so like when you were getting picked on at school you you didn't think oh they know something about me they know my secret no and i and look i'll be 50 next year i still get therapy sure (laughs) so i've i've worked a lot of stuff out now (laughs) It's so complicated. Mm. There's lots of ways to explain it. I think partly because of my very specific trauma, I learned to compartmentalize parts of myself, almost like an identity disorder in some ways. So I learned to lie to myself because when you grow up in a family where I think children of abuse or alcohol or, or alcoholism or anything like that will be very familiar with this way. There's this so much shame and guilt at a very young age that you carry that you have to hide a secret for adults. So I was very used to, you know, I would go to school at the age of six or seven and I hadn't slept all night because I'd been on guard looking out for my mother waiting for my father to just fall asleep unconscious or so sometimes it would be we would wait for him to fall asleep and my sister who back then maybe she was 10 or 11 she would try to drive the car you know to get my mother out of the situation or something I mean these were the situations we were in but then we would have to go to school and we were forbidden to tell anyone what was going on so that was a huge huge secret you know and then it would be like if anyone came over What's that hole in the wall? Oh, that oh, that was an accident. That was whatever. We would learn how to patch holes in walls, you know. Mum didn't have a black eye. It was that she'd fallen down or we weren't uh, missing school. We were on vacation or there was just so much secrecy in my life anyway. And there was so much homophobia in the 70s mm. and in the 80s. So all of that conditioning... I learned, I was the youngest of three kids and it would be like, I remember looking back trying to express some of those feelings thinking, oh, I think this boy's cute and I would be policed. You know, someone would say, you can't say that. Boys don't think Mm. boys are cute. So I learned very early on to associate those feelings in the same way that I associated the violence at home, shame, secrecy, guilt. So... The most secret part of me did know because I would pray to God and ask him not to make me gay. Mm. I don't even believe in God. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But that's what it was like. So, But then what happened was because I didn't have any 
role models because I didn't think there was anything. I didn't have a name for it. I just thought I knew when this kid called Stephen Baker walked into the classroom, my heart melted. But I didn't have anyone I could tell that to. So I thought, oh, maybe everyone just thinks this, but they don't say it. But I also did have crushes on girls and I'm not bisexual. Like I can confidently tell you, no, I'm, trust me, I love the D. Like, <laughs> you know, like I realize I'm, I'm completely identify as homosexual. But I had relationships with girls because that's all I knew I was allowed to have. Now, when I look back and realize what they were, they were beautiful. They were deeply emotional. They were like incredibly intimate friendships. And the sex wasn't the most important part of them. But I had sex. You know, like I was just, I was very prudish about it. You know, it took me a long time until like, for example, I had only had sex with two women and I married the second one, you know, as an, as a gay man, I can tell you, I've had sex with a lot more men than that, <laughs> you know? So it was just for me, I was very Puritan about it all. And I just thought, no, 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 I'm just a really, really nice guy. <laughs> I'm just, and so in my mind, I just thought, well, I have these kind of feelings or whatever, but you know, like some people, this is a gross analogy, but I was just kind of like, well, some people like the smell of their own farts, but they don't admit it. And I was like, Bruce Willis is hot, but it's something that you don't admit. So I just didn't admit it. But what happened was I got into the music business where I had this very limited view of what I thought gay was. Mm -hmm. I'd grown up in the eighties where we were we were threatened with HIV and AIDS. I mean, my generation was very much like there were ads on TV that were so, oh, I mean, I'm, it was so dramatic. It was like AIDS kills. There would be like this Grim Reaper. Yeah. Do you know this ad? And the Grim Reaper was bowling. Oh, I've seen that one. The one that was massive in the UK was the one that had a tombstone. Yeah. It was just a tombstone. So you can imagine being a child and thinking, We'll go back to my crush of Stephen Baker, okay, this young boy. I'm I'm eight, he's eight, and I think, what if people can read my mind? And I'd think, if I have these thoughts, does this mean I'm going to die? I thought I was going to die. So when AIDS happened, I made my mother take me to the GP because they told us that the symptoms were swollen glands. So what did I do? I would feel my glands every day and see if they were swollen until they became swollen. And then I would say to my mother, you have to take me to the doctor because I think I'm sick. And she would say, okay. I couldn't tell my mother. I couldn't tell the doctor. I would sit there and I would just think, okay, this will be my judgment day. And the doctor will say, all right, I need to tell your mother because you know what I found, don't you? You're gay, aren't you? And I'd go, yes, doctor. And it would be all over. I guess I was just hoping that someone would take this incredible guilt and worry and pain off my shoulders as a little boy, but no one did. And so I learned to put it at the very furthest place of my mind in the same place that I put all of my horror, all the trauma that I'd seen, and I just didn't deal with it. And like all things, you know, all of your, there's a great U2 lyric where he says, uh, in my dreams, I was drowning my sorrows, but my sorrows, they learned to float. 
And that's what happened to me because I started traveling the world and realized that queer people come in all shapes and sizes. I remember doing a photo shoot one day and I was so attracted to the photographer, the male photographer, and it was all inside, all this, 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 this terrible guilt. And let me preface this by saying why I talk about this guilt and this shame, because I'm, this is just me. This is not a judgment on anyone, but I'm someone who I can only really exist in a monogamous relationship. That's just me. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea of having even thoughts about someone else when I was married, it felt so treacherous. Mm. So I'm on a photo shoot and I'm having my heart palpitations that this man is taking my picture and I feel this connection, have no idea that he's gay. And then he just makes some passing comment that his boyfriend's going to come by later. And it's like the whole world stops. I say to someone, wait, he's gay? And they go, yeah, yeah, you didn't, you didn't know he was gay. I was like, no. And it was one of, I could cry now. It was one of the deepest sadnesses I remember feeling in my life because at that point, I think I was maybe 24 and I thought I've made a terrible mistake. I have made a terrible mistake and I'm going to ruin so many people's lives. And my first thought was my wife was just, I realized, oh my God, this is, this is possible. I have these feelings. People can have relationships. You can be with someone of the same sex. And I've made a terrible, terrible mistake. And it sort of unfolded from there, really. My realization that I had feelings for men and I, I was going to have to deal with it one day. And then doing that in the spotlight, like I know what it was like doing that at college mm -hmm. where I felt like everyone was looking at me. Mm -hmm. But to do it when literally there's cameras, there must have been cameras in your face all the time and... You know, because you guys were super famous. Yeah. In a way that like, like I know, it, I guess fame is just so different now because people can choose to upload photos and we have sort of access in a way to celebrity. But I guess then people were just like, they wanted a photo for you for the National Enquirer or for Smash Hits or whatever the, uh, the magazine was. So it must have felt like. Yes. Everything was very heteronormative. Mm -hmm. Everything was, um, because what's so strange is I never told anyone I was married in the beginning. And I remember being furious when in Australia, it was like a paparazzi scoop and scandal that I was married and it became like, oh, he's married because I always, I always knew. And to this day, there aren't any public photos of my, I mean, her name is public because that, that mm -hmm. got out, but her name's Colby and we're still, I mean, we chat all the time. We're, we're dear friends. That's great. Yeah, she's an incredible really nice. human being. But I always was very protective of, of my private life anyway. So when that got out that I was married, that was always like, damn it. Because I think a part of me knew that mm. I was going to have to untangle this one day anyway. So the questions used to always be things like, you know, what kind of girl do you like? And I, even when I was married, I would say... I like people who are, so I was always ahead of the game in, I mean, I like to think that I actively tried to never say that I was straight and I was very aware of, I'd never wanted to be in a position where anyone could say that I lied about my sexuality because I was still working it out. Mm. And then 
I did the thing that a lot of people still do and did in the day, whereas I would say I don't want to talk about my private life, which back then was a pretty clear coming out. And so I was very surprised that people didn't kind of work it out. I mean, again, you saw my outfits on stage. So when, I mean, I'm skipping back and forward a little bit in time, but the truth is like when I did come out, I came out privately very openly. Privately, when I came out, it was incredibly painful. Like I had never even held a boy's hand. And I came out to my wife, her parents, my family, everybody. It was this incredibly painful moment where I just said, look, this is, this is, you know, you know, you need to know this. And, and we went into counseling and was, it was all at the height of my fame. And it was like, look, this is the situation. And, and for us, unfortunately, Again, I'm not religious, but because I was so famous, I couldn't know who I could trust to deal with this kind of private moment. So we ended up, it was like a, a free Christian counselor, the worst decision ever. And this male counselor said to me in the session, I am married and I'm straight and I'm attracted to my wife. But you know who I think is really attractive is Pamela Anderson from the TV show Baywatch. And my wife doesn't look like her. Now, do you think I'd like to be with a woman that looks like Pamela Anderson? I really, really would. But I don't because I'm married. And that was the, that was the marriage gu- guidance we got. And we, we left that marriage counselling. And I cried my eyes out and, and essentially came to the conclusion that I thought that I was going to end up killing myself one day being suicidal. Like my depression was so, so great. I didn't want to be divorced. I loved my wife so, so much. It was, if I could have erased the part of me back then, my internalized homophobia was so great. I would have. So that's what was so painful for me and so hard for me. Um, Even when I did, even when we did separate, we separated uh, at the end of uh, the first album and I was going to see if I was gay which was so painful for me. Like the idea mm. of even like being separated and whatever, it was just so, so painful. So that's what songs like um, I Don't Know You Anymore are about. That's me calling her up from New York and begging her to take me back and her being so strong and saying to me, I love you, but please stick with this. Man, what a woman. Yeah, and like an amazing human being, like to have that. Sorry, it's emotional to me even to this day, but to have to have that strength to to love me so much, mm. to not let me come back and and ruin the rest of her life, and know that there was a future for me one day, even though in the moment all I really wanted to do was just make all of it go away. I didn't want to mm. deal with it. What was so so hard for me. In the, in the prevailing years was that I am someone because of my childhood, because of the trauma that I had. I live with a lot of mental health problems. I have a major depressive disorder and I've had many periods of, of, of suicidal ideation. Um, and I'm so, so lucky that I have a lot of privilege to have the mental health care that I need to be alive. But, you know, when I was going through a lot of that, there's an interview that I did with Simon Amstel. 
hmm. which was one of the most painful things that have ever happened to me because he tried to out me on, on television. And it was a period in my life where even though I was dating men, I was in that headspace that I talked about where I was suicidal and mm. I hadn't come out to the public because I hadn't even accepted it within myself. Like it was something within me that I was still grieving this part of me, this life that I hadn't reconciled. And I remember going on Pop Idol and uh, he just literally in the middle of a live, well, it was a pre-taped interview, but in, in the middle of an interview, just on the spot, was just so, so cruel in, in, this, in the name of comedy. And, I mean, he's never apologised. I mean, I look back now, it was before I met my husband, and, mm-hmm. and it's funny because now it's one of those things where when you've had a functioning, loving relationship like the one I have. I've been married now for 16 years. Well, the minute that I met my husband, it was a no-brainer for me to come out because I loved myself. Mm -hmm. I was finally in a position where I could attract someone to me that was healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, prior to that Simon Amstel moment, what was happening to me was... I was repeating really abusive situations that had happened to me in my childhood. I was trying to find men that would fix the the damage in me that my father had caused. You know, mm-hmm. I was looking for these men who were who would treat me badly because I felt like that's what I deserved and because I I hated myself so much mm-hmm. for ending my marriage. Um, and blamed myself so much for ending my marriage. I never really felt that I was deserving of love. And so, sorry to get no. you know, emotion, emotional, but th- that the whole coming out thing for me, that's why it was so painful because it wasn't just a decision of like, like everyone in my life, yes, they knew that I was gay and they knew that I was dating men, but there were times in my life where people were on a 24-hour suicide watch with me, mm. you know? So to have another gay person do that to me, I, I just, to this day, I'm still so shocked that that That, that was happened. okay? Yeah, that he thought that was okay. It's shocking. Yeah. And so I'm always so, today I'm always so like, I think we forget we've come so far. Like, mm-hmm. as I said, listen, now I'm so comfortable in my sexuality, 16 years of being married to the best person I've ever met in my life. It's funny. I've been watching older interviews of of George uh, of George Michael because I think George had a similar experience to me in that when he was proud of Anselmo, I think for him it, it was just like, well, I want to tell the world because I, I think for George he just became very careless mm-hmm. back then. He didn't care if anyone found out he was gay because he was just so in love. But for me, my my sort of twenty twenties version of that was uh, or my twenty whatever that decade was. But my version of that was like, I wanted to scream it from the rooftops. And I did. Like I came out in a, I think I came out on MySpace, which was just so hilarious. But for me, it was just like, I I announced, I came out by telling everyone I married my husband. Mm-hmm. Because that for me was like something I was so proud of and something within me had healed. But my point was, I always am very, very careful to remember that 
even today, everyone's journey to coming out, just because we had fucking glee, Mm -hmm. just because Adam Lambert exists, just because you exist, just because I'm, I'm talking to you right now, it doesn't mean that it's still easy for someone to... Because there's so much history and psychology mm. and Context. culture. Thank you. That goes into like the coming out process. I come out every day. Every gay person will tell you that. Mm-hmm. If I meet a stranger, I'm always having to make the decision. You know, I sit next to someone on a plane. I have to make a decision. Now, as a white person fine. My difference is very easy for me to choose whether I reveal or conceal whatever my point of difference is. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to race or if it comes to mobility or ability or any other points of difference, I realize I'm completely privileged in that sense, right? That I can choose to reveal things about myself or not. But it is still something that I deal with in that I have to gauge whether the person, how they're going to react to me whether, you know, I want to deal with their reaction or not. Whether you have the energy that day. <laughs> that day to deal with their reaction. Mm-hmm. Even if it's simple, even if it's as simple as a passive aggressive response to be like, well, oh, oh, that's okay. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people realize how offensive that is. And some says, oh, I don't, I don't that's, I don't, that doesn't bother me. Oh, but I know you. it bothers others. That's why I'm letting you know. It, <laughs> there are other people that it would bother and I'm a good person. <laughs> You mentioned George Michael, who, of course, mm. I love. When you were coming out, was he, mm-hmm. was that when he was going through the phase where he was like, I don't care if people find out? Was it like, how close was it to like, let's go outside? Like, Yes. No, before that, I was, I was so, so glad you came back to that because, that, you know, when you said to me that there was a lyric in a Savage song that made you be like, oh, there was a lyric in a George Michael song because hilariously, I didn't know George was gay. I had no idea. I just was thought he was so gorgeous and no idea, right, until he released the album Older. Mm-hmm. And there's a song on that album called The Strangest Thing. And there's a lyric in there. And I just knew because it was how I was feeling about my desire for men. And George said, please, please make love to me. Make love to me, send love through me, heal me with your crime. The only one who ever knew me, we've wasted so much time, so much time. And I could tell in that lyric the history of pain and regret. And it tapped into that feeling I talked to you about my dawning of realizing, oh my God, I have spent a lot of my life in complete denial of my actual true instinct, my true nature. And it was that album to me was like a secret code. It was like, Mm. oh, my gosh. And so we had that song, um, the first song in there. What did we say? So why don't we make a little room in my... What's that song? BMW. I could just tell he was horny. (laughs) I knew that. (laughs) And I knew that. I didn't know at the time, but what was happening was he had buried the love of his life and he was finally back out on the dating scene again. And he was basically saying, oh, 
there's a line and he says, I do believe that we are practicing the same religion. Yes. <gasps> I just got goosebumps just saying that. But I, I realized that was George saying, I, we're family. Mm-hmm. I think you're gay. He's hitting on someone. He's having that connection with another man. And he's saying, listen, I think we practice the same religion. I think you feel what I feel. I think you might be gay. That album, that was the album for me where... And he was talking to you. He was talking to me. And yet he hadn't, he hadn't, well, he hadn't been outed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, George hadn't come out yet. But I knew, and that was enough for me. Mm-hmm. That was enough. I knew George was gay and that's all I needed. That he, in my mind as an artist, and he said, he had said that, you know, previously in interviews um, before he passed that for him, he was singing about men. It was obvious. And to yeah. me, it was obvious at that point. I was like, oh, you're singing about men now. And I understand that. Yeah. How did the world react when you came out? Like, obviously, your world, your your friends, your family, mm-hmm. your like I guess, management and the record label. Like, I guess there were varying degrees of response. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. So I remember when I first started doing stand up, I remember someone saying to me, if you say you're bisexual, and this wasn't my management, by the way, because my management are fantastic. If you say you're bisexual, that'll kind of be easier for Telly to deal with rather than just being a lesbian. Wow. And I remember being like, uh, I don't really want to do that because it's not true. And I feel like comedy, like all of my comedy is, comes from truth. I don't really lie on stage. And mm. that was, you know, 12 years ago. And so there were already people that wow. were in the industry sort of going, and, and even now I have, occasionally we'll have TV people going, we just don't know where to place you with hosting your own thing or like, and I and I often think like, are you saying you don't know where to put a lesbian? Like, is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. so, you know, let's not, I, mean, I don't want to talk about me, but like, I can only Please imagine do. what, no. I, I can only imagine what that must've been like 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago in big mainstream, music like do we we, your label like don't come out oh my gosh so there's a lot more it's funny i keep alluding to this next year i'm going to talk a lot more about this because Mm -hmm. next year i'm going to be uh i've been sort of away for 10 years for my mental health and it's been Mm -hmm. amazing and i'm so grateful for that um and next year i'm going to be back a lot more and i will speak about this because i've had right. a long time long time to think about it mm-hmm. and it has are made you, are, its you gonna, are you going to release music you're going to uh, my music. lips are sealed but okay you can, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll make of that what i will okay that's that this is this is great this is great news exactly. to, me to have some new darren hayes floating around the uh the spotify list so the, <laughs> the reality is i've had a long time to think about this yeah. and um the reaction from the public was beautiful mm-hmm. the reaction was just overwhelmingly beautiful. I remember being on a plane when I pressed, there was Wi-Fi in the airport and I pressed send on the blog and it was a flight from Thailand back to London. Mm -hmm. And I might post a picture of it one day. There's a picture of me that my husband took of me and I look so peaceful. I'm just looking at him and it was like dropping a love bomb. Mm. Because I knew that there was going to be a reaction, but I wasn't scared anymore. And when I landed, the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. So my fans, I'm so, so grateful for and whatever. Um, You'll notice if you go to YouTube or things like that, a lot of my videos have comments turned off Mm -hmm. because there are still 
so much homophobia. It is not singular to me. It's just it happens to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think it's important for us to just be honest about that because we're low-hanging fruit and it just happens all over social media. There's still so much homophobia out there. You know, you look at an artist like Little Nas X and he is just constantly just going head to head with these mm-hmm. homophobes. That's pretty vile and that's never really changed. So there's always been a section of the general public who hate anything different mm-hmm. who've always been pretty vile. I would say that the US record company pretty much buried me once I came out. And I'll talk more about that next year. But the UK were incredible. I'm going to quote Kylie here, but I remember um, she won't remember saying this. And we're not really friends. Like we've spoken on the phone a couple of times when I was really famous and I don't even have her phone number anymore. But back when I was the type of famous where you could speak to a lot of famous people, I remember she gave me some advice once, which was that you have to go where the sun shines because people forget that there was a period when Kylie was... You know, she was the biggest star on the planet. And then for a while, people tried to just really take her down. Like, it was after the Stock Aitken-Waterman thing, it was, like, Mm -hmm. cool to kind of bash Kylie. So she kind of just went to Australia and reinvented herself for a while. And and Aussies just loved this new, like, alternate Kylie and then whatever. And then she built herself in the ground back up. And my version of that was going to the UK. So when I made an album called The Tension and the Spark, it was in reaction to the fact that I'd been buried on my album Spin, mm-hmm. you know, they saw a music video where I looked a little bit gay and they decided that that was it. They knew I was gay, but once they decided it was obvious I was gay, they buried me. But the UK didn't. And I just, I have a whole career now because of that period. The fact that people even know my name is blows me away because coming from this massive band to try to start again and I started from scratch is so daunting and the UK just gave me a second home, you know, during that period. So that was amazing. And yeah, there's all sorts of marginalizing that goes on. I mean, I'm, I try to be positive about it, but I can't lie about it. You know, I felt dismissed a lot. I felt like I've been treated like a eunuch sometimes like when you're gay you are often not seen as a sexual being because that's a little bit repulsive they just desexualize you desexualize you exactly mm. because it's a little bit well, we don't want to think about what you might do in the sheets and so it's easier to just make you harmless mm-hmm. which is exactly when you talk about and you're being very polite and pc and i admire you for it but when someone says we didn't quite know where to place you to me, when I extrapolate about that, it's just kind of like we don't, you know, we don't, we don't want to deal with thinking about with all of you. We don't want all of you. All of you. We want this bit that we can sort of just take and go, yeah, in, on people's TVs. But then I find that, like, for so my audience when I go out on tour are obviously there's always some gays. There's always the pitter patter of Birkenstocks. The gay girls come out in force, but there's loads of straight people, loads and loads and loads of straight people come and see Same me. with my audience. Yeah. And Same I with my audience. I think they give a shit. <laughs> like they just don't care. It's just the gatekeepers that care. 100%. It's so patronizing because yeah. the gatekeepers are making all these decisions that our audiences don't give a shit about. No, they're like, I don't care. I'm going to come and watch you talk about you and your wife and I don't, you know, and I'll play like, you know, I can, 
I've played like all over the the country and played bear kits. I've also played all over Australia. I know we love you. That's why I was like, <laughs> yes, I'll do your show. No, of course. <laughs> but like, even in places where like, like I remember I said to a guy on, in Melbourne, he said, "Where are you playing next?" I said, "I'm going to Broken Hill," and his response was. <laughs> Ah, yeah, they've had a lesbian there once before, which (laughs) I loved because it was singular. Um, But then I I went to Broken Hill where I assumed it would be really homophobic. And people were like, ah, yeah, she was funny. I don't really care. You know, and I think that's how people respond. Like, I don't like people like, like, but it's interesting, isn't it, that people that do have those, the keys to the gates sort of go, oh, God, what will people think? How will they, will they understand I know, and it usually is media types because the reality is, like, our audiences are now, like, everyone is within hugging distance of 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 someone on the queer spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's like we live now in 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 a world where so many families now realize, oh my god, I have a family member who fits somewhere mm-hmm. on this on this spectrum, and that that normalization has been so helpful. It's that's what's you know. You've experienced it, but it's one of those things that once someone comes out in your family, it really helps change the dynamic of everyone's points of view. And then they're like, mm-hmm. oh, and it's it's sad that that has, has to be the case. And I wish there was a, a quicker way to deal with that when it, when it comes to racism. You know, when it comes to race, it's often that, that idea that if you can't see it, you can't be it, you know, which is why representation is so important in terms of like mm. how we feel positions of power or casting or any just a- anything that we children see it's like well we need them to see everybody doing everything as soon as someone meets someone like us they realize how normal we are and if people could just do that about every subsection of society but go. not only subsections but every type of person in the world and then we just, just do go- the work and then you just do the work and then you just sort of admit that stuff like what's been really humbling for me living in the United States was the the Black Lives Matter movement and then realizing that anti-racism is really an active thing that white mm-hmm. people have to do mm-hmm. you know and just the embarrassment that you have to live through and own on your own of just being like oh my god this whole time I really thought that I was an ally and not only do I not get a participation trophy for that but also I don't get anyone to hold my hand through this embarrassment of like being mm-hmm. like oh my god like okay it's just like yeah that's the bare minimum that you can do and like but it's been a really humbling necessarily humbling humiliating Mm. experience of the last two or three years of just really having it just in the news every day of just understanding wow you know I really thought that I was putting in the work and being an ally and I wasn't I was just doing this sort of bare minimum Mm. but it's a lesson to learn across everything about being a good human and just kind of removing that that notion of like what stops I think all of us from just being a good person I think sometimes it's the fear of being called out or embarrassed or whatever like I'll reference someone before that I spoke about I I think one day maybe I'll have the opportunity to have a chat to Simon Amstel Mm. and I hope I have the opportunity to say well, I presume that he's changed and he's a different person today. And I would have the opportunity to say, look, I forgive you because I'm like, my God, I've made so many mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. like we have to be able to let people make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the fear of like treading on eggshells around anything to do with like, <gasps> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it stops growth. But I'm so grateful anytime anyone even makes the effort. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, don't apologize. Like I get it. I always tell this story and I think it's helpful. Like 
when I uh, when I first married Richard, my little nephews at the time they were really young. They were maybe six and seven. They were sitting in the back of a car, and we're driving along. And my my mum was with me, so their grandma. You know, we're driving in a car, and they're sitting in the back seat. And they go, Uncle Darren, yeah, is it true that you married a boy? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, giggle, giggle, giggle. And I could feel my mum just dying, you know, like, oh my. And I, and, but I was a preschool teacher, right? So children have no filter and they say the truth. And there's nothing a child could say that could come from any place that is like, could ever like be mean or mm. mean intentioned. It's just pure unfiltered, like whatever. And then they went, um, that's weird. One of them said, that's weird. And my mum went, um, you know, she just said, uh, you know, Benjamin, that's rude. That And and uh, I said, no, mum, 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 it's fine. And he was mortified, right, because he loves me and, and he was he was mortified. And I just said, no, mum, it's okay. And I said, Ben, you know what? It is a bit weird. And I, that's okay. And he's like, and he just looked, you know, he, he's looking at me in the rear vision mirror and he was a bit stunned because he thought he was going to get in trouble. And you got to understand, this was 16 years ago. And I said, no, I get it. I said, here's the thing. It is a bit unusual at the moment, Ben. Like, there aren't a lot of men who get married. And he goes, there aren't, are there? You know? And we just had this whole honest conversation where I was just saying, it's okay for you to say to me, like, I. he's like, I don't, I've never known a man to get married. And I'm like, I am actually one of the first. You know, and yet my beautiful mum, I love my mum so much. And all she was trying to do was stop me being hurt. Yeah. But in in doing so, you know, she was just, she'd, she'd lost sight of the fact that the truth was, I was actually one of the first people mm-hmm. in the country to get married. And this little child was just saying that, like, that's a bit weird. And I was like, it. if you break down what the word weird meant to yeah. him, it was like, this is just a bit unusual, unusual to me. And I had to say to him, you know, it, it is. And, and here's, here's what happens. Some boys like boys and some girls like girls and some boys like girls and boys. And, and he was just like, oh, right. End of discussion. Yeah. Totally. Never been a big deal. That was his introduction to sexuality over. Yeah. You know totally. what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Right. I'm going to ask the last question that we ask absolutely everybody on the show. And you can think of it as yourself or you can think of it as someone that's listening. We get a lot of people that listen to the show. Lots of people that are uh, that have just come out. Lots of people that have been out a long time. Some people that are. I had a letter the other day from a guy that was in his sixties and had just come out, and oh, he lo- and he him. loves the pod, and he and he felt sort of uh, a sense of community from this this podcast, uh, which is joyful for me. And so I guess the, the the time in your life I'm thinking of is maybe the kid at school who was listening to the bad album and was not having a great time with the kids at school and if you could like sort of go back in time or like put your arm around him or give him a ring and 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 tell him about what's to come what advice would you give him or it can be some kid that's listening who knows where right now oh I love this first of all thank you for having me and doing this I don't think you truly realize how important this is and how I wish that I'd had this when I was you know, that 15-year-old that we're going to talk to right now, but you are a freaking angel. So thank you, Susie. You know, I would tell him the thing about you that you're most ashamed of and most afraid of is going to be the thing that people applaud for the most. The thing about you that makes you a target is the thing that makes you so unique and so special. And 
people are just afraid of it because they've never seen it before. And one day it's going to be the thing about you that brings you the most happiness. So just be kind to it. That's perfect. Thank you so much. (laughs) You are, oh my God, I love you. Thank you for having me. That means more to me than you could possibly know. (laughs) That really means a lot. That was the remarkable Darren Hayes. I loved him. I love him so much. I love him so much. I am uh, desperate to be his friend. Um, Maybe we will become friends one day. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Um, As ever, please get in touch with me. The email is hello at withsusieruffle.com. If you've got suggestions for guests, I'm trying my best to get as many people as you've asked for. Um, Get in touch. Please tweet about the show, Instagram about the show. Thanks so much for listening. And I will see you next week. If you want to catch me on tour, you can find all the details at susieruffle.com. You have a great week and I'll speak to you next week. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.